The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So welcome to Saturday afternoon. And um, there was just a question that was being asked about uh, uh, copies of this book. Um, we brought down 60 copies, assuming that would be about the number of people here today. But uh, if you wish to, uh, to get a copy, if you didn't get one today and you would like to have a copy of your own, either come to, um, to Berkeley next Tuesday, because I, I come down first Tuesday of every month and give a talk in Berkeley. So if you, if you durst cross the bay, if you cross the Great Water, then uh, at the Berkeley Buddhist Monastery um, on Tuesday, uh, we'll bring more copies down then. Or you can <gasps> brave the drive all the way up to Abayagiri Monastery in the, up in Mendocino County. You're welcome to come up and visit there. Or um, if you can't manage either of that, then we can mail you one. But uh, just write to the monastery and, and ask for a copy and then we'll send you one. So, the, yes, and yeah, you can access it online. It's the, there's a free uh, download. There's a PDF of it online, so it's also very accessible there. And that's much easier to copy passages from the online version. Okay, so maybe uh, if we begin the afternoon sitting quietly together for a, a few minutes. So I'll begin the afternoon covering a little bit more of the uh, terrain of the um, uh, transcendent. And um, we'll begin with uh, the chapter called uh, Attending to the Deathless. So that's chapter 7, which begins on page 123. So the word deathless in Pali is amata. Mata or mara is death. And the A at the beginning is a negative. So my name is the same. My name also means deathless, amara. Mara is death, amara not death. Or as when I was just given the name at my ordination, one of the, the uh, Thai monks who was there said, Oh, good name, very auspicious, non-dead. <laughs> Um, if I look a little zombified, you know, it's because I'm the, the venerable non-dead. <laughs> so this, uh, it will start with the, the first uh, quotation for, for this chapter. So this is uh, quotation 7.1. And this comes from the Anguttara Nikaya, the book of, of discourses connected by by numbers, this is in the Book of the Threes. Then Venerable Anuruddha went to where Venerable Sariputta was staying and on arrival greeted him courteously. After an exchange of friendly greetings, he sat down to one side. As he was sitting there, he said to Venerable Sariputta, By means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos. My energy is aroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is established and unshaken. My body is calm and unaroused. My mind is concentrated into singleness. And yet, my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging. 
So he's saying, Sariputta, who was an arahant and fully enlightened, uh, is he, uh, was the Buddha's chief disciple, and Anuruddha was a relative of the Buddha, um, and uh, a um, one of his close students, but this is prior to Anuruddha's enlightenment. So then Sariputta replies to him, My friend, when the thought occurs to you by means of the divine eye, purified and surpassing the human, I see the thousandfold cosmos, that is related to your conceit. When the thought occurs to you, my energy is aroused and unsluggish, my mindfulness is established and unshaken, my body is calm and unperturbed, my mind is concentrated into singleness, that is related to your restlessness. When the thought occurs to you, and yet my mind is not released from the outflows through lack of clinging, that is related to your anxiety. It would be well if, abandoning these three qualities, not attending to these three qualities, you directed your mind to the deathless element. So after that, Venerable Anuruddha, abandoning those three qualities, not attending to those three qualities, directed his mind to the deathless element. Dwelling alone, secluded, heedful, ardent and resolute, he in no long time reached and remained in the supreme goal of the holy life for which people rightly go forth from home into homelessness, knowing and realizing it for himself in the here and now. He knew, birth is ended, the holy life lived, the task done. There is no more coming into any state of being. And thus, the Venerable Anuruddha became another one of the Arahants. So this is one of the, uh, a very sweet little exchange, brotherly, <laughs> brotherly encounter, where Anuruddha, who is uh, very accomplished in um, psychic powers and such like, uh, goes along to Sariputta and then talking about these qualities that you think he'd get a word of praise for. Like, oh, well done, yeah, nice job, <laughs> brother. But uh, Sariputta being the uh, uncompromising uh, and helpful, friendly influence, um, he's pointing out a, a particular trait. Um, and so, uh, the, what he's pointing to, I mean, there's, there's different ways you can interpret it, but how, how I read it, he's pointing to uh, the fact that Anuruddha, even though these are extremely wholesome states that he's experiencing, things that are very, very positive and, and significant, he's... Um, pointing out how these are uh, these are all conditioned qualities, and the, what you're trying to do is you're just trying to, uh, through focusing on these and trying to get all these qualities improved, or by measuring your sort of success through these exalted qualities, you're you're missing the point. And so it's like um, the uh, <coughs> there's a famous Zen story that comes to mind, uh, where there's a um, uh, a monk in a Zen monastery who's being extremely, like Anuruddha, extremely impressive and committed in his meditation. He's always sitting up, you know, late into the night, and and um, uh, in his meditation, he's always uh, sitting straight as a poker, absolutely resolute, incredibly helpful, hard worker, doing all the right things. Um, and then uh, one day, he's out working in the garden, and he, he sees the, um, the the abbot, the Zen master, sitting down at the, uh, the end of a, the pathway on a bench and he's not quite sure what he's doing and as he sort of mindfully sweeps the rest of the path and gets up closer and closer he sees that the, the master is sitting there polishing something and then uh, he gets up closer and closer and he sees he's polishing a brick uh, and then he, he's supposed to be working sweeping, sweeping the path mindfully but after a while and he sees the abbot kind of sitting there working away on this, this brick and he thinks, what is he doing? And so finally he can't resist um, uh, asking the question and finally 
brings his hands together and says, Venerable Sir, Ajahn, Roshi, <laughs> um, what is it that you're doing? I've seen you, I've been sweeping this, the, the garden for, for ages and you've been sitting there on this bench. Uh, it looks like you're, pol- you're, um, you're polishing something. What is it that you're, you're trying to do? So, well, yes, I'm polishing something. I'm polishing this brick. And he said, oh, well, what, what have you got in mind? What are you going to use it for? It's an odd thing to do, to polish a brick. And he said, oh, well, I'm, 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 wanting, I'm polishing it so it'll turn into a diamond. Um, <laughs> far be it from me to disagree with you, Venerable Sir, but you know, no matter how much you polish the brick, it's not going to turn into a diamond. <clears throat> and then, of course, as they always do in these stories, the, the teacher looks at him and says, exactly. <laughs> and then gets up and walks off leaving the, the uh, aspiring student with the shiny brick. You know. <laughs> and so um, the, uh, the moral of the tale being that if we are simply trying to create, to, to arrive at the unconditioned through polishing the conditioned, <laughs> it ain't going to happen. You just get a polished brick. <laughs> you get a very nicely polished brick, but it's, it's, not, it's not the unconditioned. So that he's... What Sariputta is doing is saying that no, no, you're you're trying very hard, but you you're you're, tr- you're pointing your attention in the, the wrong direction. So just relax a bit and uh, back off, and then see uh, instead if you can just direct your mind away from from these conditioned aspects and see if you can recognize the, the unconditioned, the deathless. So that's why he says it will be good. And also he's there's these pointed deflations, you know, just like. <laughs> Uh, in, in this um, politely putting down his all these highly exalted qualities, this is related to your re- your restlessness, your conceit, and your anxiety, um, you know, which are obstructions to the 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 final levels of enlightenment. Like they're the uh, some of the the qualities that obstruct arahantship, and so that it's it's interesting. In this, he says, not attending to these three qualities, uh, if you directed your mind to the deathless element. So it's it, it's not a complicated process is it, that he's describing. It's just don't pay attention to these. Just advert your attention to a, a different area. And so, in, in many ways, it's, this is ex- very comparable to uh, a lot of these kind of practices that you find, say, in the uh, in the say, Dzogchen um, tradition or, or the in Advaita Vedanta, where it's not a lot. There's not a lot of doing involved. It's just a very particular kind of, of not doing or, or undoing. That's the, the main thing. A sense of, of just shifting the perspective, which obviously takes a lot of effort. <laughs> but there's not a lot of stuff that that we're we're doing. And so I, I studied a bit with um, uh, Sogni Rinpoche, and uh, his uh, a phrase he liked to use was undistracted non-meditation undistracted non-meditation because meditation can be so much of a thing can't it I'm doing my practice you know I'm going to sit <laughs> you know going to Spirit Rock to sit are we going to have a, 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 a IMC is trying to find a new place to have a, 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 a retreat center so that people can have their own place to sit <laughs> you know and it's, this is all very good I mean in having a day like today so we create an event and we all come together and we do our thing um but it's a thing, right? And so that no matter how good the, the thing is, as long as we're trying to find liberation or perfection or, or fulfillment through the, the, the rearrangement of, of things, 
and the perfection of things that will, will always stay, that the heart will stay bound to the conditioned realm. And so that uh, what uh, this, this is pointing to is it's not a matter of devaluing the conditioned or getting rid of it, it's just ch- changing the, the perspective on it. And of course, it's, it's, it's simple in some respects, but a heck of a job to do. <laughs> but, uh, the, um, uh, again, quoting Sokni Rinpoche, uh, he, uh, he was staying at a... Uh, um, when he was teaching at Spirit Rock, he was staying at, at somebody's house in Marin, this very plush uh, residence. And he, he's a pretty observant person. He saw there were some, some valuable items uh, around the place. And it was you know, very, very... Uh, uh, posh and ex- sort of exquisite, valuable furnishings, and and so he said to his his host, "Oh, you got some pretty nice things here. Um, you know, do you, do you spend a lot of effort collecting things?" He says, "Well, not really. It's kind of a hobby, but you know, I'm not really attached to any of it." <laughs> and so suddenly, remember, she, he picked up the coffee pot, and there's this like thirty-six thousand dollar silk carpet, and he says, "Not attached." <laughs> How would you feel if I if I Turn the coffee coffee pot over under the carpet. That's how I heard the story, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but I can believe it <laughs> because he's he's pretty cheeky in his uh, his way of teaching. But it was true. He calls this California Dharma. It's his term for it, which is which is you know it's both it's kind of jo- it's kind of joking and but also in his, again quoting him also not joking. <laughs> Those of you who studied with him. He'd say, only joking, only joking, or not joking. <laughs> <laughs> and so California Dharma is having where you're, the, sort of the idea of, of transcendence or loving the idea of ultimate reality and non-dualism, but actually some deeply embedded, <laughs> very deeply embedded personal preferences that are, uh, are at, at play. And so that um, it's, a, it's a job to really cultivate that quality of... of um, Non, uh, non-bias in relationship to the conditioned world, but it, it's, it is doable. And so that when we uh, we're talking about the practice, and so much of it can be to do with um, using the methodologies, using the methods of meditation, using the structures of spiritual practice and training, but not getting wedded to those, or the sense of attachment, even to your tradition or your center or your practice, your your meditation. You're not uh, you're you're using those. Uh, elements and those tools, but without turning it into a thing that I'm doing or my my uh, my program, my practice, my my space. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. My space is <laughs> is very popular yeah. amongst a certain sector. So that that <clears throat> the way that we turn uh, the processes of, of of our experience into things. Is, is a, uh, a large uh, part of what obscures our capacity to, to see the truth, to see Dhamma, to, to, liberate, to be liberated. And that that uh, unconscious um, uh, kind of attachment concretizing is, is uh, so insidious. And so this kind of a practice where he's saying, attending to the deathless, it's just recognizing, oh look, this is just, an, this is just another thing. This is just a, it's a beautiful thing, or it's a precious thing, or it's my thing, yeah? Okay, technically it's yours, but it is just a thing. And then when we look closely, we recognize that a thing is actually more like, more accurately represented as being an event. 
that there aren't really any things, like solid permanent objects, but there's an, uh, a coming together of an e- event. And some languages um, that famously don't have, uh, don't have nouns, like the, as I understand the Hopi and Navajo language don't have nouns as such, but they, ha- they just use verbs and adverbs. Um, so that you s- this isn't a bell, this is belling. Or you wouldn't, um, they even probably have the varieties of the, of the ways of saying this or that, like thising and thatting. <laughs> but uh, the, the world is not turned into distinct, concrete, separate objects through the way they're spoken about, but more um, we're seeing patterns of events changing. So that this change of vision, uh, the shift of vision that's being described here, is in a sense letting go of the thingness of, of, our, of the way we create the world and uh, establishing more of a, an open quality of, of, of awareness. Actually, I was having a conversation during the, the lunch break about, about that very word because awareness, the, the ness on the end of it, makes it a thing. Even emptiness. Uh, again, these subjects are all talked about in this, <laughs> this book. That uh, aware, uh, awareness, emptiness can sound like a thing, sunyata or shunyata in the Sanskrit. It can sound like this sort of mysterious ethereal substance. Um, but in, in, uh, in, in truth, it's more helpful to talk about knowing as a, in terms of being a verb. It's like an activity rather than a, a, a thing or even a subtle thing. So that um, this is uh, a, a subtle area of practice. Um, and again, this is one of the reasons why the Buddha thought there's no point even trying to explain this. <laughs> this is way too abstruse. But it is so, it's so helpful just to be aware of what the mind is doing and also how it doesn't actually take a huge amount to change the perspective. But if we don't make the effort to do it, it doesn't happen on its own. <laughs> so that um, in the, the next passage, and when he's talking about uh, jhana, he uh, applies the same kind of um, perspective, which is so. This is on page 126, and he's talking about establishing this kind of insight in relationship to, to deep states of, of concentration. So, this is passage 7.3. Here, a bhikkhu enters upon and remains in the first jhana, experiencing refreshment and pleasure born of withdrawal, accompanied by applied and sustained thought. He regards whatever phenomena there are that are connected with the body, feeling, perceptions, mental formations and consciousness as impermanent, unsatisfactory, a disease, a cancer, a barb, painful, an affliction, alien, as disintegrating, void, as not-self. He turns his mind away from those states and having done so, inclines his mind towards the property of deathlessness, recognizing this is peaceful, this is exquisite, the stilling of all mental processes, the relinquishment of all the paraphernalia of becoming, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, nibbana. Standing there, he reaches the ending of the, of the mental outflows, or, if not, then through that very dhamma passion, that, that dhamma delight, and from the total ending of the first five of the fetters, he is due to re- be reborn in the pure abodes, there to attain final nibbana, never again to return from that world. And so the same wording is repeated with reference to the other three rupa jhanas, so second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. Um, so with each of them, so the mind is in these deep states of concentration, and um, and there's this reflection. You know, this is um, this is conditioned and thus and thus gross. You know, this is a, a kind of a coarse formation, and um, 
if you go back to um, page 75, there's a quote there that relates to this, which is, um, again, this is from the Majima Nikaya. Whether based on, this is uh, quote number 4.7. Whether based on perceptions of form or of the formless, of the limited or of the immeasurable, some assert the base of nothingness, immeasurable and imperturbable, to be the self. However, all that is conditioned and thus gross, but there is the cessation of formations. Having known there is this and seeing the escape from it all, the Tathagata has gone beyond it. So that, that sense of, of paying attention to each of the, the, the jhanas even, recognizing this is a condition of mind, this is, this is a formation, this is, this is something that's gross, this is not uh, the, uh, the unconditioned. And so recognizing that any kind of identification with that or attachment to it is going to lead to, to dukkha, then there's that, that letting go. So it turns his ma- mind away from those states, having done so, turn, inclines his mind towards the property of deathlessness. So even in those deep states of jhana, first, second, third, fourth jhana, there's still that recognition, oh, this is, this is just a conditioned state. And that even though it's blissful and beautiful and delightful, that, that t- there's, if there's the mindfulness to turn away from that and, and let go, then um, you can use the, the energy and clarity of those states then to awaken to that, the unconditioned, uh, the amata dhamma, the unconditioned uh, element. So, any particular questions on that? Yeah, at the back there, with the blue shirt. Buddha had uh, temptations by Mara, mm-hmm. and is it just before his enlightenment? Mm-hmm. So, I, my question to you is, how should we? I mean, obviously, we, we want to think more about the positive, you know, where our mind is supposed to be. But can you mention how we're supposed to? Should we just think? Well, just touch on Mara and then leave it alone, or what, what should we do? <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. I mean, Ma- Mara is a, a mythological figure. Mara means death, so it's pretty much of a clue as to what Mara is representing. <laughs> um, so it's it's uh, Mara is like the embodiment of all that which it contributes to delusion and bondage to to that which causes alienation and and dukkha. Uh, and so, Mara can appear in many different forms. So there's Machu Mara, who's the killer. Machu means to kill. There's Kilesa Mara, the Mara of defilements, of corruption, and deceit. There's uh, Kanda Mara, who is the, that's the like, identification with, with uh, the five Kandas, the body and the mental faculties. There's Avisankara Mara. There's only five of them, don't worry. <laughs> Abhisankara Mara is the Mara of thinking, the habit of believing our thoughts. And then the last one, the most refined one, is called Devaputta Mara. And Devaputta Mara is, is very much like the Lucifer figure of the Bible. As Lucifer was the brightest of the archangels till he got a conceit problem and uh, was cast down from, from the high heavens and plunged into the pit. So Lucifer... But Lucifer means the, the, is from the Latin looks, like the, the bright one, the radiant one. So similarly, Mara, um, just like Lucifer is the brightest of the archangels, Deva Putamara is the, the Deva who is the, the king of the highest of the sensual heavens. So you have, the, in, in Buddhist cosmology, you have um, seven uh, sensual heavens from the uh, earth spirits, 
the guardian deities, the heaven of the 33 gods, the Yama Devas, the heaven of the contented, the heaven of those who delight in creating, the heaven of those who delight in the creations of others. The seven heavens. Devaputamara is the king. He's the boss of that top heaven. Do you have a particular book or writing uh, somewhere where we could just look at that? Uh, there is a number of things. The best book actually is in German. It's never been translated into English by Windisch. Um, but Stephen Batchelor did a, a copy, took a lot of material that the Windisch covers in his book. The, the Windisch's book is called Das Buddha und Mara. <laughs> so that's pretty easy to remember the title of. But uh, Stephen Batchelor's book is called Living with the Devil. So they're both. But anyway, the, um, they're all representing in mythological form different aspects of our own delusions. So Mara can come under the... the uh, so Devaputa Mara, like this radiant, brilliant, intelligent, impressive, ever so appealing, beautiful being, um, will uh, be that kind of... Um, Delusion whereby if the mind's in a deep state of, of, of concentration and is in a, or in a blissful state of happiness, it's the mind that says, oh, this is great. I really, really like this. This is great. That's the entry point of Mara, is that, that which is relishing even beautiful and wholesome things. Um, could you maybe say something about I mean, there is the, this polishing of wholesome states that mm-hmm. we focus on to set up the conditions for making that leap mm-hmm. or whatever, however you want to describe it into nirvana so could you talk about that maybe? well this is 99.9% of our lives <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's a strange mixture you know um, and again uh, quoting Ajahn Chah, um, he, uh, one of the, he was very good at these nifty one-liners. And uh, one, when Ajahn Sumedha was asked for the most memorable thing that, he, that our teacher had ever said to him, he said, um, practicing the, the monastic discipline is all about hanging on. Practicing the Dhamma is all about letting go. When you figure out how those two work together, you'll be fine. <laughs> so it's, it's mysterious because, you know, like Ajahn Chah was, he was an extremely kind of proper monk. You know, he was ex- famously strict with the monastic discipline and required a very, very high standard and encouraged a really high standard of, of conduct and, and commitment and dedication from all of his students. But he was also totally unattached to it. And so to the rational mind, it's like, well, what, you know, either it matters or it doesn't. Like the question about, about like loving our, our dear ones or weeping when they die. You know, um, it's, how can he do that? Like he's, he's sort of sitting up there on the Dharma seat and, and saying, you know, the, a great length how it's our, our conduct and our, our, you know, our mindful attention to detail of, of training is very important and keeping the precepts is the most important thing. And then, and then moments later he'll, he'll say, there are no people here. There's no monks in this hall. There are no nuns. There aren't any women or men here. Are there? 
really. I mean, there aren't actually any women or men here. It just appears this way. This is just the appearance of things. This is just the, the way that it looks to our conditioned senses. That's all. These are just conventions. We say man, we say woman, we say nun, we say monk, we say old person, young person. These are just creations. We just, these are just things that we determine into existence. We say they are, they are this and, and we all agree to call it that, so we call it, so it's that. But there's nothing really here, is there? And so, yeah, he, on the one hand, it's like, yes, you, you should um, train yourself and cultivate wholesomeness and, and do everything that you can to, to develop, to create blessings and, and good karma and really put your, your heart and your back into it. But yet, on the other hand, there's absolutely, there's absolutely nothing here whatsoever. I mean, really, there isn't anything. <laughs> and the, and the, the two not... Uh, and and there's absolutely no contradiction between the two. And so, it takes someone who really embodies that to really carry it across. But it, that's, that's how it works. Because if you cling to the idea, well, nothing matters. We're all Buddhas. We're all totally enlightened from the beginning. Therefore, I'm going to go back to bed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> or like, let, let's uh, go to the beach or hit the bottle. You know? And so, that, that's clinging to the idea of, of transcendence. You're, you're, you're taking the idea of, uh, of the ultimate and clinging to that. On the other hand, it's like, no, no, no it all really matters. The most important thing is not, uh, it's not that uh, ultimate principle, but it's how we act. And we've got to do this, and we shouldn't do that, and this is right, and that's wrong, and, and we've, we've got to create all, all the good karma possible. And, uh, so that, but then that's clinging to the, the world of form. So this, what, in a way, the essence of the middle way is holding both of those realities in, in place so that you wholeheartedly com- commit yourself to to cultivating wholesome qualities and goodness. and But yet, at the same time, you're keeping that all within the context of there's absolutely nothing and nobody here. So the, the good qualities are lend themselves to that understanding absolutely, yeah. of that letting go, whereas going the opposite direction is, is actually um, going away from the... is actually a lot of clinging and... Uh, uh, the behavior itself is going toward that, that ultimate letting go. Well, let's say, the way, the way I like to talk about it is that, it's just like quoting Hamlet. I mean, it's a, it's a big day for quotations, but Hamlet says, there is nothing good or evil of itself, but our thinking makes it so. There is nothing good or evil of itself, but our thinking makes it so. So that, yes, there is nothing, um, actually, there's a, there's a haiku I remember from Japan, which is, there is nothing that is uh, is truly good or evil on its own, but people tend to weep when certain things are done. People tend to weep when certain things are done. So, what uh, the the whole concept of of goodness and badness, kusala and akusala, wholesomeness and unwholesomeness in in Buddhist philosophy, is to do with when things are wholesome, that means they're in accord with dhamma, in accord with reality. So, what that does is that when we act in a wholesome way, that leaves the heart free from remorse, it gives rise to, pleasant, to feelings of clarity, of happiness, of peacefulness. So it supports the basis for concentration, which supports uh, the basis for insight and liberation. When we act in, and so it's not that goodness is intrinsically good, it's just it sets up the conditions for that awakening to that reality. That badness is not intrinsically bad, um, 
it's just when we uh, act in a way that's selfish or destructive or cruel or indulgent, then we create regret in ourselves, we create confusion, we create fear, uh, we create alienation, so that we're, we're um, uh, making the, setting up the conditions whereby it's going to be much harder for that basic truth to be realized. It's like um, the, uh, before you get into your car and, uh, and drive, it's the contrast between getting out the, the squeegee and cleaning the, the windscreen so that you can, sh- you can see well, or getting out, you know, get some handfuls of clay from the garden and smearing it all over the windscreen. Well, this will be exciting. <laughs> Anyone ready for a ride? You know, think, all right, let's go. Okay, eyes, blindfolds on. Okay, let's rip, you know. It'll be exciting. And, uh, you know, maybe it's... And, and there is an attraction towards that kind of excitement. I remember a... a, a, a a phrase that, that came to mind a couple of days ago, which was um, uh, when someone was talking about their... Um, the, they, she realized her basic um, fear of, of normality. Was that, Why would I want to be healed and normal when I could be a brilliant wounded fragment? <laughs> and she, she was pegging it out. She could see for herself there was this... I want to be this, this desperate shocked, you know, ragged, tormented, special thing. It's far better than just me driving. Yeah, and seeing clearly how boring. So, there is, as I was saying earlier today, there is, an, there is an attraction towards that kind of charge. And it's not belittling or, or, um, or negating that, but it's in a way, the Buddha says, yeah, there is that, but we can do better than that. And not just as a sort of a weak compromise, but there's there's a there's a deeper reality, a deeper kind of satisfaction that we can tap into if we if we let ourselves. So there's also a lovely little passage in the Itivuttaka, the the sayings of the Buddha, where he says, um, and, it, and it seems to come on the tail of a conversation of someone talking about the development of wisdom, saying, "Well, really, wisdom is the most important thing, and we don't have to bother with that kind of good karma stuff." Pa. You know, I spit on your good karma. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, if you're really wise, you don't need any of that stuff. And, and the Buddha says, that, that seems to have been the kind of thing that has gone before, because the Buddha says, monks, don't belittle uh, good karma. Don't belittle the quality of punya, of merit. Yeah, because merit is, uh, punya is a, is a synonym for happiness. You know, that it's, not a, it's not a small thing. That, uh, yeah, on, on one level, it's not absolutely important. But it's like, yeah, you don't really need to clean your kitchen, yeah. <laughs> In an absolute sense, you know, you don't. I'm, I have no psychic powers to see your sink, so don't worry. <laughs> but uh, yeah, you don't really need to clean your kitchen, but you know, it does make a difference if you sort of get the the majority of the stuff off the surfaces, and the sink is kind of tidied up before you start cooking. You know, as a there's a, a chemistry there. Um, you talk about um, that when, when the heart achieves nibbana, there's, there's feeling of um, joy and peaceful and as such. So does that need to be let go or it cannot be let go itself? Um, if there's any clinging, then let go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's um, that can be experience without any kind of clinging whatsoever. 
you know, that uh, you can experience total happiness and joy without there being any attachment to it. And there won't be any... Um, as long as there's a feeling of ownership, or this is mine, you know, I'm experiencing this, this is who and what I am, this belongs to me, then that will create dukkha. There's a... Um, I'm not sure if we have it in this... I think we do, but let's check. In the... Um, um, Majima Nikaya in the sutta called the, the Panchataya sutta, not the punctured tire sutta. <laughs> Let me, let's see. I think it's 510, let's see. The Panchataya sutta, and the Buddha talks about the, um, here we are. It's, this is page 90. Here, because some summoner or Brahmin, with the relinquishing of views about the past and the future through complete lack of resolve upon the fetters of sensual pleasure, and with the surmounting of the rapture of seclusion, unworldly pleasure and neutral feeling, they regard themselves thus. I am at peace. I have attained Nibbana. I am without clinging. The Tathagata Bhikkhus understands this thus. This good summoner or Brahmin, with the relinquishing of views about the past and future and so on, they regard themselves as, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbana, I am without clinging. Certainly this venerable one asserts the way directed to Nibbana. Yet this good Samana or Brahmin still clings, clinging either to a view about the past or to a view about the future or to a fetter of sensual pleasure or to the rapture of seclusion or to unworldly pleasure or to neutral feeling. And when this venerable one regards themselves thus, I am, at, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbana, I am without clinging, that too is declared to be clinging on the part of this good Samana or Brahmin. All that is conditioned and thus gross, but there is the cessation of formations. Having understood there is this, seeing the escape from that, the Tathagata has gone beyond that. So that the, um, the, very, the very phraseology, the way the mind puts it, I, I am at peace, I have attained Nibbana, I am without clinging. That demonstrates the clinging that's still there. So the degree to which there's a, a I am this, I have this, I am the owner, I'm the doer, I'm the experiencer, the degree to which that I am is, is solidified is, is exactly proportional to the amount of dukkha, of, of uh, discontent and, and alienation that, that's that's experienced. So the more that that is that there is the experience of nibbana, but no uh, uh, no identification with it, then um, then the more fully it's uh, and completely it's realised. Um, there's another passage again. Let me see if I can um, find it where. Um, it's, uh, let's see, this is on page 95, so this is part of a quote number 5.15. Um, so this is at the end of a, a very, very long sutra, the first sutra of the Majjhima Nikaya. And um, uh, so it's the, I'll just read the last paragraph at the top of page 95. He directly knows, um, starts off with the four elements and goes to all these different realms and then uh, from the all as the all to he directly knows Nibbana as Nibbana. He does not conceive himself as Nibbana. He does not conceive himself in Nibbana. He does not conceive himself apart from or coming from Nibbana. He does not conceive Nibbana to be mine, nor does he delight in Nibbana. And that word delight is to like to relish or to kind of 
Wow! Yes! He does not delight in Nibbana. Why is that? Because he has understood that delight is the root of suffering. And that with being as conditioned there is birth and that for whatever has come to be there is aging and death. Therefore, because through the complete destruction, fading away, cessation, giving up and relinquishing of cravings, the Tathagata has awakened to supreme full enlightenment, I say. So that, that word delight there um, is, uh, uh, I think it's um, nandiya is the, the word there. And uh, so that uh, has a quality of like, Slightly sort of glassy eye, like wow, kind of relishing, and a sort of uh, a being carried away by something. Um, so that uh, that's why, in that um, even that sense of of uh, experiencing the pleasure of nibbana wouldn't have that kind of uh, slightly glassy or, or carried away quality to it. It's completely as a total mindfulness, but it's also. Uh, uh, a, a mindfulness which is not um, caught up with any kind of delusion, or is not carried away. It's not a. a it's not like the um, uh, sort of being in, entranced or intoxicated with with bliss. It's like being totally um, unintoxicated with bliss. <laughs> that makes sense. Okay, so moving right along, we'll now go to um, the quality of unsupported and unsupportive consciousness and that's chapter 8 so this this is using a a different angle of of approach Um, this is uh, page 132 so um, this is using a different kind of imagery this is the imagery of, of the mind not being able to land anywhere or not, uh, not landing on anything. So this is um, the, the Buddha used this, this kind of phraseology that, uh, of unsupported consciousness, so that consciousness that does not land on anything or does not settle or is not established any place. Or also, um, in a similar way, it's like the consciousness which nothing can land upon. So nothing that uh, nothing can land. And so he uses those two different modes in, in different places. Um, and so that's why, hence the chapter is called Unsupported and Unsupportive Consciousness. So the first one is a, is a, a long sutta from the uh, Diga Nikaya, the long discourse, is discourse number 11. This was translated by Maurice Walsh. And this, um, in this, this story, the Buddha is giving a, um, uh, it's like a, a, a long sort of shaggy dog story where what happens is that uh, a monk is meditating and he has the idea where is it? I wonder where earth, water, fire and wind cease without remainder. You know, or so where is it that the things of the world come to an end? Where is it that the, the four elements, the four great elements, where is it that they come to an end and cease without remainder? Like, which is like asking, where is the end of the world? Or what's the end of the universe? And so, um, being an adept meditator then, this uh, monk absorbs in his mind and goes up and talks to the uh, the first devas that he comes across um, up in the, uh, the the lower heavenly realms, and um, uh, then the uh, the first devas uh, meet him and he asks them this question: Where is it that that earth, water, fire, and wind cease without remainder? And then 
Uh, that's the retinue of the four great kings, and then they say, "Oh, we don't know, but uh, if you better ask the four great kings themselves, you know, they, they understand this kind of stuff. They're, they're really smart. They know, they know these things. You better ask them." So he goes up to the four great kings, and says, "Could you tell me where is it, where it is that the four great elements cease and out without remaining?" They say, "Oh, we don't. Oh, that's tough. We don't know that sort of thing. You know, we're not really philosophers, but you know, the Tavatinsa Devas, they're they're pretty smart. You know, Saka, you know, the king of the, the Tavatinsa heaven." He's clued in on this kind of stuff. You better ask him. He's a disciple of the Buddha, so he should know. So it goes on up to, to the Tavatings of heaven. Where is it that the four, four great elements cease without remainder? Ooh, don't know about that. Well, you better ask up in the, the Yamadevas and then all the way up the, this sort of celestial chain of command up into the, uh, the Brahma heaven. So it approaches the, the Devas of Brahma's retinue. And... Um, they, uh, uh, he asks the, uh, um, the, uh, the devas of Brahma's retinue and uh, they can't produce an answer but they assure him that the great Brahma himself should he deign to manifest is certain to provide him with a resolution he seeks. Sure enough, before too long he appears, the great Brahma and at this point we are treated to a taste of the wry wit of the Buddha. So this is quote number 8.2. And that, uh, and that monk went up to him and said, Friend! Where do the four great elements, earth, water, fire, and air, cease without remainder? To which the great Brahma replied, Monk, I am Brahma. Great Brahma, the conqueror, the unconquered, the all-seeing, all-powerful, the Lord, the maker and creator, the ruler, the appointer, the orderer, the father of all that have been and shall be. <laughs> and then the monk said, Well, friend, I, am, I didn't ask you if you're Brahma, great Brahma. <laughs> etc etc I asked you where the four great elements cease without remainder and a second time the great Brahma replied as before the third time the monk said friend I did not ask you that I asked you where the four great elements cease without remainder then Kevanda the great Brahma took that monk by the arm led him aside and said monk these devas believe there is nothing that Brahma does not see there is nothing he does not know there is nothing he is unaware of that is why I did not speak in front of them but monk I don't know where the four great elements cease without remainder. Therefore, monk, you have acted wrongly. You have acted incorrectly by going beyond the blessed Lord and going in search of an answer to the question elsewhere. Now, monk, you just go to the blessed Lord and put this question to him, and whatever answer he gives you, accept it. So, he then goes back and uh, uh, goes to see the Buddha and asks him the same question. And uh, the Buddha uh, says to him, well... You know, you're asking the question in the wrong way. And instead, this is how the question should have been put. Where do earth, water, fire and air no footing find? Where are long and short, small and great, fair and foul, where are name and form wholly destroyed? And the answer is, where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous, that's where earth, water, fire and air find no footing. They're both long and short, small and great, fair and foul. Their name and form, Nama and Rupa, are wholly destroyed. With the cessation of consciousness, this is all destroyed. Thus the Lord spoke, and the householder Kevanda delighted, rejoiced at his words. And the alternative translation of the, of the final verses from Bhikkhunyanananda is, Where do earth, water, fire and wind, long and short, fine and coarse, pleasant and unpleasant, no footing find? Where is it that name and form are held in check with no trace left? And the answer, consciousness which is non-manifestative, 
endless, lustrous on all sides. Here it is, that earth, water, fire and wind, no footing find. Here again are long and short, subtle and gross, pleasant and unpleasant, name and form, cut off without exceptions. When consciousness comes to cease, these are held in check herein. So that's a, a very significant and often quoted teaching. And that, that phrase, the, the key phrase of that, describing that kind of consciousness, um, is vinyanang, which is consciousness, anidasanang. Anidasana means invisible or formless, uh, non-manifesting, non-manifestative. Uh, anantang, boundless, limitless, infinite. And sabato pabang. Uh, sabato means all or everywhere. Pabba is light, so all luminous or radiant in all directions. It can also mean accessible from all sides. And so um, that uh, is describing, uh, the, in a way, the, mind, the enlightened mind. Uh, it's like a, a pocket description of, of that mind. And this is one of the very rare places that vijnana is used to describe a transcendent uh, quality of mind. Usually it's referring to uh, more um, conditioned aspects of, of uh, cognition. But um, in this respect, vijnana is, is a transcendent quality. So this is the unsupportive consciousness where when things can't land, where earth, water, fire and wind can find no footing. So when the, the mind rests in that, that, that consciousness, which is, um, say, signless or, or non-manifestative, it's formless, it's uh, limitless, it's radiant. Um, and, uh, and also, um, uh, as I said, it can also mean accessible from all sides. So that that... Uh, that was very striking in terms of comparing with um, the, the teachings of, of Dzogchen, um, that they have this uh, standard description of the, the nature of mind in, in uh, its pure state of Rigpa. And Rigpa is actually a translation of Tibetan word for Vija, V-I-J-J-A in Pali. Avija is ignorance, Vija is knowing or awareness. So Rigpa is, is Vija and Marigpa is uh, avijja, so marigpa, like not, not rigpa, <laughs> the, the ununified state uh, of mind, is um, literally means avijja. So it's the same word as the Pali for, for ignorance. Um, the um, uh, in the uh, in the twelfth chapter of the book, I, I bring all these together and sort of follow up on this, this same sutta. It's called the ch- chapter twelve is called "Knowing Emptiness and the Radiant Mind," and um, the um, let's see if I can find it. Of course, it's escaping me. Also grateful to Ruby Grad for this wonderful index that she did for us. Yeah, one thirty-seven. Great. Yeah, so. Um, in listening, this is on page 137. In listening to Zogchen teachings, it's clear that the aim of the practice is to establish the mind in innate self-arising rigpa, quote-unquote. This latter word, for which the Sanskrit is vidya, and the Pali is vidya, transcendent knowing, is variously translated as non-dual awareness, innate wisdom, pure presence, primordial being, etc. Again and again, its principal qualities are enumerated, empty of essence, cognizant in nature, unconfined in capacity. That's one of Sokni's translators would put it that way. <laughs> and then the other of his translators uh, would say, um, uh, emptiness, knowing, and lucidity or clarity. 
Again, the translations into English vary, but on consideration, the resemblance to the adjectives describing the mind, where long and short, etc., can find no footing, is very striking. To spell it out, vinyanang, cognizant in nature, anidasanang equals empty, anantang, unconfined in capacity, sabato pabang, lucid in quality. And as I diplomatically say, <laughs> whether or not this is a valid alignment of principles is for the individual to discover. I'm very proud of my own footwork there, I must say. <laughs> However, as both of these te- teachings ostensibly point to the nature of the heart liberated from ignorance, it is illuminating that these two traditions, now so widely separated geographically, should hold such similar teachings as key distillations of their wisdom. So that's on page 137 there. So this... Um, uh, in a way of, of, uh, if you, of checking, if you like, to see whether the mind is really free of, of clinging and that, the, that uh, establishment of the quality of, of nirvana or peacefulness, then there are going to be the, these qualities are all going to be there to some, uh, to some degree. The quality of spaciousness, the quality of brightness or alertness or even an inner quality, like a quality of inner uh, radiance, um, the uh, and also uh, a quality of um, uh, uh, they say formlessness. Like it's, there's not a particular sh- or shape or characteristic. The mind is not fixing on a particular object. So it's more that uh, there's a um, an openness. And even though objects can appear, obviously just. Uh, the mind being in a state of, of clarity or not clinging doesn't mean to say suddenly that the eyes stop seeing and the ears stop hearing. But there's a, a lack of fixation. So that quality of, of formlessness, as it says, non-manifestative, is, is like there's a, it's hard to put your finger on, of course. <laughs> but it's pointing to that, in a way, the transparency of experience. So sometimes, I think Stephen Batchelor is also fond of that use of the word transparency as a translation for shunyata or emptiness that things are, are, are transparent and that's a good way of representing it that there's a form but there's no solidity there like a, a pattern made in light you can just put your hand right through it so it's uh, referring so when, if, you, if you're wanting to with your meditation or just um, to, to in a way check your own sort of insight or attitude or whatever um, where you want to figure it just seeing if these qualities are present. Is there a quality of knowing? Is there a quality of spaciousness? Is there a, a brightness? Is there an alertness? What, are, are those present? And then with that, um, and in that also uh, seeing that when the mind really rests in that quality, when that, that's really the abiding um, quality of, of the, the heart and mind, then to, to, uh, to see that the, the non-landing quality, where is it that earth, water, fire and wind, things that we, that we feel and see and smell and taste and touch, they, can, they can't get a grip. It's like the Teflon. It's like the non-stick mind. That things can, uh, can arrive, but they don't stick. The mind doesn't get caught up in them. They don't uh, carry the attention away. But the things arise, they're, they're known and they, and they, they slide off. They, they, they fade without remainder. So that uh, uh, this is, a, I find, a, a helpful way of, of um, checking to see. And in, the, in a sense, the more that the, the mind has a sense of confinement or the more that the mind is, is uh, hanging on to different sounds or feelings or thoughts, perceptions, the more stickiness is apparent. And there's recognition, oh, look, there's, there's some clinging going on here. The mind is 
drifting into, into ignorance. There's not true vijja here. There's not a true, clear, unbiased knowing. The mind is drifting into avijja to some degree. That makes sense? So then the other key teaching for the unsupported consciousness is, um, uh, say, in chapter 8 and um, uh, 8.21, so 8.21. Um, and so this is talking about unsup- unsupportive, sorry, un- unsupported consciousness. So when uh, where consciousness can't land anywhere. Um, what is intended, Chaitaiti, what is acted upon and what lies latent, that is a support for the establishment of consciousness. There being a support, there is a landing of consciousness. When that consciousness lands and grows, there is a production of renewed becoming in the future. When there is a production of renewed becoming in the future, uh, birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair, uh, such is the origin uh, of this entire mass of dukkha. So when there is a production of renewed becoming in the future, there is future birth, aging and death and so on. If nothing is intended, if nothing is acted upon, but something lies latent, this is a support for the establishment of consciousness, etc. When nothing is intended, acted upon or lies latent, there is no support for the establishment of consciousness. There being no support, there is no landing of consciousness. When that consciousness does not land and grow, there is no production of renewed becoming in the future. When there's no production of new, renewed becoming in the future, there is no future birth, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair. Such is the cessation of this entire mass of dukkha. Then going on to uh, reading number 824 on the next page, page 149. There are these four nutriments for the establishing of beings who have taken birth or for the support of those in search of a place to be born. Which four? Physical food, gross or refined, contact is the second, consciousness the third, and intention is the fourth. These are the four nutriments for the establishing of beings who have taken birth or for the support of those in search of a place to be born. When there is, where there is passion, delight and craving for the nutriment of physical food, consciousness lands there and grows. Where consciousness lands and grows, mentality materiality alights. That's Nama Rupa. Where mentality materiality alights, there is the growth of volitional formations. Where there is the growth of volitional formations, there is the production of renewed becoming in the future. Where there is the production of renewed becoming in the future, there is birth, aging and death, together, I tell you, with sorrow, affliction and despair. Just as when there is dye, lac, yellow orpiment, indigo or crimson, a dyer or painter would paint the picture of a woman or a man, completing all its parts on a well-polished panel or wall, or on a piece of cloth. In the same way, when there, where there is passion, delight and craving for the nutriment of physical food, consciousness lands there and grows. Together, I tell you, with sorrow, affliction and despair. Similarly with the other three kinds of nutriment. When there is no passion for the nutriment of physical food, when there is no delight, no craving, then consciousness does not land there or grow. Mentality, materiality does not alight. There is no growth of volitional formations. There is no production of renewed becoming in the future. Where there is no production of renewed becoming in the future, there is no birth, aging and death. That, I tell you, is quite free from sorrow, affliction or despair. Just as if there were a roofed house or a roofed hall having windows on the north, the south or the east, when the sun rises and a shaft of light has entered by way of the window, where does it land? On the western wall, venerable sir. And if there's no western wall, on the ground, venerable sir. And if there's no ground, Uh, on the water, venerable sir. And if there's no water, it does not land, Venerable Sir. 
In the same way, when there is no passion for physical nutriment, contact, consciousness or intention, consciousness does not land or grow. That, I tell you, is quite free from sorrow, affliction or despair. So that has a little bit of a different tone to it. And I know in, the, uh, in these, uh, this kind of language saying no passion, that is in sort of life-affirming Bay Area culture, that's a heretical statement or something deeply unattractive. But um, it's, uh, it's good to, to take these words and to reflect on them and not just sort of uh, come at them from a, a, a presumptuous or, or reactive place, but say, well, what's that talking about? Um, and the, uh, uh, the way that the, the Buddha is pointing to this uh, uh, and seeing that, that image of the, the light coming through the, through the, um, the window, and it's pointing to the sense of, of uh, <coughs> that the mind not fixing on any particular object. Like there's, there's a consciousness, there's an awareness, but it's, it's not... Uh, Woven in, it's not woven into any fear, anything that we're afraid of, anything that we're regretful of, anything that we're hoping for, anything that we're we're missing, anything that we're burdened by. You know, all of those, it's it's not dwelling on those uh, those aspects of experience in that way. But uh, as he says, if there's nothing for it to land on, there's no uh, no fear, no uh, no regret, no. Uh, um, uh, anxiety about the future, no um, uh, planning, no regretting, no nostalgia, <laughs> then that we're not investing in, in how great it was in the past or how wonderful it's going to be in the future or how terrible it's going to be in the future. But there's that uh, abiding in the present. This is pointing to this same kind of um, quality of there being awareness as a consciousness, but it's not fixating, it's not landing, and, then, and thereby not creating those seeds of, of alienation and uh, and compulsion that, that cause so much dukkha. Does that make sense? Yeah. Are people familiar with this particular teaching? I think Ajahn Tanisra is very fond of this particular sutta, so those of you who have been along to his workshops have probably you know, heard him discoursing on this one often before. Just with language. Um, the vinyana being a, an aggregate, then it's different from this. Mm-hmm. This is a consciousness that is that doesn't attach and is not an, an aggregate. But it just gets confusing because um, you know one is one is you the um, the aggregates. This is not me. This is not myself. Mm-hmm. This is not who I am. But the um, this vinyana that you're talking that that is that is being talked about without you know that doesn't land on anything is is seems like it's talking I mean it's a different it's a different thing mm-hmm. and so <laughs> words <laughs> well that's why we have these yeah well that's why we have these days yeah. So, because um, it's to help clarify such things, because just like in English, the same word can be used in totally different, uh, with totally different meanings. Like you can go to a, a, a week-long um, conference of psychologists and, and, and scientists and say, what is, and just have the question, what is consciousness? 
you get a heck of a lot of different versions of exactly what consciousness is, right? So that the word, just like within the scientific field or the or the um, psychotherapeutic field, will be radically you know, used in radically different ways by different people. So in the in the Buddhist teachings, the same word will get used in different ways. So that then one of the, the usefulnesses of days like this is then you say, okay, well it's, the word is the same. Now what's it pointing to? So if you come at it from rather than um, uh, getting the fitting the the, the, the the words into an already existent theories that you have, rather take it from the experiential side and say, okay, what do I experience? That feeling, I, I, that feeling of of um, nothing being able to land. Now, I've had that just for a moment here and there. Now, what was that like? Now, if that's that, that he's talking about that as the consciousness where earth, water, fire, and wind can find no footing. So that's, he's talking about that as a consciousness, so that you go to your own experience of it and say, okay, so that seems to be what he's talking about. Now, how does that fit in with, with the other things that he said? So you're starting with your own experience and then, and then reflecting on the teachings from that basis rather than starting with the, the, the theory and trying to get the theory to all sort of line up. Um, and so then what you find is that you get uh, more of a sense of, okay, in this instance, the word is being used like this. It's being used um, just like with the conversation we had earlier about heart and mind. That's exactly what I was going to say. So, okay, now, what's the context here? You've got to see how it's being used. Who's the writer? What are they, what are they, ref- what are they probably referring to? And then you're taking in those different nuances and getting a sense of the context. Okay, it feels like it's this one. That, this is what they're talking about. Let's apply that and see whether it fits. That reminds me of that um, one of the uh, other words in my mind is, is the, where Mahabuha talks about jitta as that which, that which knows. Mm-hmm. So it seems like that's using consciousness and jitta as the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, when I um, I was asked to do a uh, an introduction to a, a book of Ajahn Sumedho's Dhamma talks um, called The Sound of Silence, and uh, well, I, I did the the intro to the original one, which is called um, Intuitive Awareness, and I had to do several pages on his different usages of the word consciousness because it varies a lot, and he tends to to use consciousness as more often than not as a, a transcendent awareness. That's how Ajahn Sumedho uses the word almost all the time. So he very rarely means um, the, the, more, the, the more conditioned kind of consciousness. So uh, I, uh, I had to do a sort of long explanation and give the examples from the, the sutta and from the talks that he gave and say, well, this is what he's talking about, just to help clarify that. But it, it's, uh, it's also helpful just when you are reading teachings or listening to the teachings to, to have that basic reflective attitude rather than, than um, trying to fit it into an already existent model. More of that sense of, oh, that's interesting. Well, how does, how does that work? And be ready to, to you know, A, shift your own model or, or see things in a, in a more flexible way. Or also just to say, well, I don't know what the heck that person's meaning. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. But rather than rejecting it, just say, okay, well, that really doesn't seem to fit with anything that I know. But um, maybe uh, I'll figure that out later, or that will become clear. Like for a while, Ajahn Sumedho was giving Dhamma talks about soul. Soul, S-O-U-L. 
and he was using he was using soul as a as a sort of um, synonym for for um, uh, mindfulness and wisdom. Didn't go for very long. <laughs> but he tried it out. He, he's very experimental. He tried it out. He's sort of looking for words. And and his own his phrase intuitive awareness. That's his translation of sati sampajanya, which is usually mindfulness and clear comprehension. So he just uh, is sort of exploring the language and trying things out, just trying to get closer to the to the the meaning uh, of words. So it, I, to me, I find it's helpful because English ha- there's a lot of of Pali words that really have no corresponding term in English, and you, so it's good to have that that sort of exploratory attitude and and sense uh, have a sense of well, what's this pointing to? How can this fit together? Okay, if this is supposed to lead to that, how does that work? What that what must this be talking about? And so then you're but you're starting with your experience as the basic. Um, uh, Parameter which you measure things by, rather than a conceptual map that you already have got accustomed to. The, um, when you talk, when they talk about consciousness landing, mm-hmm. um, that that whole paragraph was very confusing several months ago when I read that, and um, something not landing on something, and said, like you said, I don't know what the heck they're talking about, <laughs> but. It seemed like later on that um, it seems like consciousness, there, there is an implication here that there's a movement of consciousness. Mm-hmm. So to me, when, when I was experiencing not paying attention, not, mm-hmm. not drawing the attention outward, mm-hmm. or when, I, when the attention is noticed that it's on something, mm-hmm. and there's so redirection, it seemed like there was no place to land. Mm. Is that what they're talking about? Yeah. Could it be interpreted that yeah. way? Yeah. yeah. So they um, say, for example, in, in the passage 8.22, um, the wording says, um, when consciousness taking a stance, the one attached is unreleased, one unattached is released. Should consciousness, when taking a stance, stand attached to a physical form, supported by form as its object, established on form, watered with delight, it would exhibit growth, increase and development. And so on for each of the five khandas. Um, and so that it's that the, the mind taking hold of that. And, and, and as I said earlier about thingness, making it into a real thing. Like this is my body, this body is mine, it's real and it's solid and it's permanent. This is my teacup, which I know shouldn't be in here. <laughs> I'll employ an executive privilege for the day. So it's that, that landing, like, this is mine, this is here, this is a thing. That, that landing and taking hold, it's that, um, so that, that phrase, sort of taking a stance on that, on that physical form or feeling or perception, whatever. So then that's just in that very taking a stance like, uh, it's like landing on it taking hold of it sort of becoming uh, identified with it that is synonymous with creating the, insofar as it, the, the mind does that then it creates the, the causes of, of dukkha the less that it does that then, um, then the, the less dukkha that's created but also with, with all of these teachings some of them that it, it, we read the words and you think 
What, just like you said, what the heck does that mean? And that's fine. If, if, things, if we read things and think, oh, I haven't got a clue what that's talking about, then it's, it's often it's very appropriate just to put that aside and then wait till you get to one that says, ah, that makes sense. So I get, I get a, a, a clear feeling about what that's pointing to. So that um, rather than feeling that we have to, to sort of make, uh, figure everything out, Sometimes the way that particular teachings are phrased, they just don't match our own sort of internal mapping. It's just like, no, it's, it's a, it's a three-pin plug and it's a two-pin socket. It's just not going to happen. Well, even with the same teachers sometimes, the yeah. teachers yeah. even um, the Buddha's declaration of his own enlightenment. Oh, I'm enlightened, you know, the story he talks to, mm-hmm. the first person he sees, and then he says, don't attach to <laughs> well, you did. <laughs> yeah, but he learned quickly, didn't he? Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so it's like, okay, yeah, he learned quickly and then he's telling us not to do the same mistakes or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like that. Like Ajahn Sumedho's talks on consciousness, like you were talking about, he's referring to consciousness maybe in the particular talks I've heard in a very different, mm-hmm. he's almost talking about the still awareness. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, then it's okay, then how can this consciousness be moving? Why is it moving? Where, did, where does it have to land? Mm-hmm. It's already landed. Mm-hmm. You know, so you start, the mind starts questioning things like that. And um, so there was a whole lot of confusion you know, until you explain now that it could really be, <coughs> I'm still asking, is this the attention piece that, that connects this moment of consciousness, that there is, only through attention we kind of have our experiences, at least that's the way I feel. Um, so if the attention doesn't land, is that what they're talking about? Attention and consciousness moving is the same thing? Well, if the, the I mean, all language is, is relative. Right. Um, uh, you know, all analogies are partial. You can quote me on that. Okay. <laughs> so they, they, can only, they can only be a, a good enough fit. And so if you bear that in mind, then you're never going to get a perfect match. And um, again, like Wittgenstein said, that which, we can't, that which we can't speak of, the mind must necessarily pass over. So that that uh, ways of expressing things can never totally capture it. So then, like, we say the mind moves, but, you know, like, Ajahn Chah would often say, no, the mind doesn't move, objects change. The mind doesn't go anywhere. And, of course, in the whole chapter of non-locality and um, the unborn, it points out, and like I was saying earlier about Sati Center, that where does not apply, essentially, because geography, three-dimensional space, only applies to the physical world. The mind doesn't have a, a place in, in space where it exists. It only has um, a relevance to the, to the mature place, only has a relative... Uh, importance or meaning in the material world. So saying something moves is just a, a, a figure of speech. Right. Like saying the mind moves. Is it, well, it doesn't. It, ob, mind objects change, but the mind... The, the, where doesn't apply in, in terms of the mind. <laughs> so how can the mind move? It can't, in essence. But it's just a convenient figure of speech to describe the, a thought arising and passing. So then uh, that... Um, what, you, what we're trying to do is qual- cultivate the quality of attention, which is not fixating blindly or habitually on, on particular objects and, and then saying, this is good, that's bad, in an in a automatic and 
and uh, blindly, uh, sort of unconsciously judgmental way. But it's also, we're talking about, say, Ajahn Sumedho's use of the word consciousness. Uh, I don't know how it is in the Burmese tradition, or in Sri Lanka, or even or India, but in Thailand, virtually every Dhamma teacher pretty much has their own language, yeah. and they have their own favorite phrases. So like, the way Ajahn Mahabur talks, talks about the jitta, you know, that's totally different from the way that, say, Ajahn Tate would talk about the jitta, or, or uh, you know, Ajahn Buddhadasa. Like there was one, one teacher had the Ajahn Lumpotun, who gave a monastery next door to us in, in Mendocino County. Uh, I, he would, he's passed away now, but he would come and, and lead retreats there every summer. And I was there with, listening to him give like a, an hour long discourse on the, 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 the very important distinction between jnana dasana, knowledge and vision, and dasana jnana vision and knowledge. They're not the same thing. Oh no, <laughs> don't make that mistake. Jnana dasana is not the same as dasana jnana. And I'm thinking, I never even heard of that word before. <laughs> jnana dasana I haven't. But it's this really big thing and it was like, and it was a freak, and you know, he was teaching there for many days and we up and it was a frequent subject of his Dhamma talks was, don't make the mistake of, of mixing up jnana dasana and dasana jnana. And it's like, if you're, an, if you're a Lumpur Tun disciple, it's like, oh yeah, great, Lumpur's really telling us how it is, you know. <laughs> and, <laughs> but uh, if you're not familiar with his vernacular or, or what he's talking about, then after a while you think, okay, when he says jnana dasana, this is what he's talking about. Okay, when he's talking about dasana jnana, oh, okay, I think I get it. That's what he's talking about with that. Uh-huh. So you have to do this, like, your own little language course yeah. with every particular teacher. And I'm sure it's the same. Gil, I'm sure, has his own favorite phrases and... Ajahn Tanisro, similarly. You know, how many people here read Ajahn Tanisro's books and find you have to translate as you go along? And we actually asked him if we could take all his unbindings and unbind them. <laughs> Ajahn Pasno begged permission, said, can we just change your unbindings to Nibbana, please? Because no one else really likes that as a translation. Ajahn Jeff is, is very fond of it. And, and it's accurate in, in many respects, but... It's just not going to catch on. <laughs> but, but, and so you, you find, that at least when I'm reading his translations, and I, I, I just, I, I'm re-rendering words as I go along. Because that, you know, that, but it's his prerogative to translate things as he likes. So that, that, that kind of, of um, process whereby when you're, you're listening and studying, it's important. Like, what, what's this really referring to? Okay, how does this work? If this is, if this is, leading, if, if this is leading to the deathless, if and then if and then if he if if the lack of this is the path to death, now what's that talking about? And what does death mean there? Can it mean the body not breathing? What is that? So that you're you're always using that reflective, investigative attitude when you pick up the teachings, and particularly for this sort of abstruse area of these kind of metaphysical uh, abstruse qualities, it's really important just to dig in and and and, and look for ourselves and, and get a sense of it because. Just making a, a neat conceptual map doesn't really de- release liberators. <laughs> but getting a real felt sense for how it works. Okay, that seems to be what it's talking about. Okay, that's, that's what it's pointing to. Just like that, getting a, a, that sense of, oh, right, the island that you can't go beyond. You can't go beyond because it's awareness and you can't get behind awareness. You can be aware, but you can't be... Object, you can't watch, there can't be a watching of your awareness from an objective point of view because it, the awareness is the back wall. That's why you can't go beyond it. Ah. 
It's like, and then seeing, oh, that's why Ajahn Sumedha would use that example of, you can't see your own eyes. I can't, you know, I can see, but I can't see my own eyes. Oh, that's, that's why you can't go beyond this. The island that you can't go beyond. Ah. So that you're just sort of picking up the ideas and the themes and sort of exploring them and then, think, okay, now I got it. That's how it works. That's what it's referring to. And then, um, then it's not just a set of words like, or oh, the island that you cannot go beyond, but you're mapping it onto a, a, a felt experience. Okay, that's what it's referring to. Now, 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 what does that imply then? Or where does that lead to? Or what else does that bring with it? Right? So that it's, it's like a, an interactive process with it. Yeah, it used to be very frustrating reading all different translations. It seems like everything is so much could be lost in translation. Well, if you want consistency, you will suffer. Exactly. <laughs> I, I found a lot of suffering. I guarantee that. Yeah. Yes, there was a lot of suffering, and then I said, okay, I'm just going to give up reading for a while. <laughs> well, you don't have to and give up reading, just give up hoping for consistency. Right. <laughs> Hope well, is a great, is a great folly. Yes. Then that gave me the revelation, I just have to stop hoping everybody will be consistent with something I had mapped out for myself. And it helps, you know, but they're all using so many different, same words in so many different ways. Yes. <laughs> That's the way it is. Okay, so speaking of the unconditioned and non-locality and Ajahn let's go on to chapter 9. And we'll have a little bit of a break after this one. Okay, so... This is page 155, and this is where I tell the story about the encounter in Oxford. And uh, for the second edition, we could include a piece about Sati Center. <laughs> um, so, uh, the, the first quotation in this chapter, page 156. Um, so, this is about the, uh, the quality of... of um, Location and one of the things that's, that's interesting, I, I first really started to reflect on this when I was in a retreat years ago. And we, I went to retreat time at, at a Bayagiri, and uh, <coughs> so I noticed that even when the, when doing meditation, when the, there was a, a clear sense of, ev- uh, of, of every, all experience being uh, transient and, and uh, in a state of change and uh, unsatisfactory and and not self. I've started to notice that even though everything was clearly not self, there was a way that it was all happening here. There was a hereness to it. And, and suddenly it was like, oh, the mind is still creating a, a here and a there, even though there's no feeling of self. But beyond that, there's a, there's a, a this and a that, a here and a there, that is, is still being conjured into being. So I started to investigate that. And the feeling of, of location, or, or the, that, that, that located quality. And uh, I realized that that was also a subtle kind of attachment. And so then I, I began to see that actually there were many teachings about um, non-locality and, and letting go of that feeling of, of that, that subtle kind of clinging of creating uh, a, like an internal space of here and there. Um, even, you know, that's sort of beyond the, the, that or more subtle in the insight into not-self. So this chapter revolves a lot around that. And uh, this, this particular quote from Ajahn Mahabua, um, page 156, says, 
Here, as a present-day example, and to illustrate the centrality of such relinquishment, is the insight which arose for Ajahn Mahabur in the period of intense practice <coughs> immediately following Ajahn Man's final passing away. It was this thought which he describes as having arisen on its own, and more, that it was heard rather than thought, which led to Ajahn Mahabur's full enlightenment shortly thereafter. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is the essence of a level of being. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is the essence of a level of being. So that's like the, 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 that quality of awareness or, or hearness. He's pointing to that is the, the, like the, the, the nexus of birth, of the mind being born and, and latching onto a, a, an identity. That just that um, that that quality of knowing, having a, a center or a a, a, a hearness, that's the, the sort of the, the beginning of the of the vortex, the the um, germination of the the, the self delusion. And following on from that, then we have a couple of the the most uh, well known uh, passages in relationship to the um, the unconditioned. Uh, the ultimate truth that um, are here in the, the canon, and these both come in the Udana, which is the Buddha's a collection of the Buddha's inspired utterances, and um, these are both from the uh, the eighth chapter of that, which is called um, uh, is the the book is often tra- translated as the inspired utterances or or um, uh, the uh, declarations or something like that they're, they're kind of where the Buddha made a, like an emphatic statement there is that sphere or that sphere of being where there is no earth no water no fire nor wind no sphere of infinity of space or infinity of consciousness of nothingness or even of neither perception nor non-perception there there is neither this world nor the other world neither, neither moon nor sun this sphere I call neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no evolution and no support. This, just this, is the end of dukkha. There is the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned and unformed. If there were not, there would be no escape discerned from that which is born, created, conditioned and formed. But since there is this unborn, uncreated, unconditioned and unformed, Escape is therefore discerned from that which is born, created, conditioned, and formed. Now, the, those um, uh, might seem unappealing. <laughs> what? No sun, no moon, <laughs> no stars. And, uh, yeah. But, um, again, it's important not to just sort of react to our own uh, habitual. Uh, perceptions and not thinking of this as some sort of really super duper bleak heaven. Let's see, it might be the, the sort of top notch destination, but like, boy, that's really unappealing. Um, but if you're, if that does have that effect, there's actually, we have to be include some things about the off putting qualities of Nibbana. That, um, both Ajahn Man, Ajahn Chah, and many other teachers sort of pointed to because there's this often remarked on us like, wow, if that's what Nibbana's like, I, who wants to go there? Won't see your friends. It's going to be really boring. No music, or <laughs> no sunrises. But um, it's uh, uh, that's a, a, a superficial <laughs> um, view of it. 
And uh, it's also interesting in this, this passage that the verb to be that's used, when he, the Buddha says there is, he doesn't use the ordinary kind of verb to be, which is hoti, but he uses the verb ati, which is a, um, a quality, uh, it, it indicates a quality of being that is not in a state of time or becoming. It's like a, a, you know, an, an essential actuality. So it's very rarely used in the, in the Pali, but it's when the Buddha makes these kind of metaphysical statements, like that which is beyond the normal senses and uh, that which is outside of the realm of time and conditionality, then he uses the verb ati to, to represent that. The, um, in terms of, of using or understanding these, these passages, um, these are really uh, uh, kind of inf- they're, they're important to, to reflect on and consider. And just taking a simple um, phrase uh, from that, like um, what is you know, neither coming nor going nor standing still? What is that? You know, how, how does that work? And um, the uh, <coughs> on on page 162, um, this is also a theme that Ajahn Chah used to use a lot, like that, not going anywhere. And uh, he used a phrase at the end of his life, the last couple of years of his teaching, he used a phrase that he coined himself, which is still flowing water. And he'd ask people uh, when they came to visit, have you ever seen still water? And they'd say, yes. So, you ever see flowing water? Like, um, yeah, of course. Did you, did you ever see still flowing water? And then, what did he say? And in, in Thai, it's uh, nam lai ning. Nam, la, nam is water, lai is to flow, and ning is to be still. Nam lai ning. And uh, so he, uh, he'd say, nam lai ning. Can he mai? And they go, what? And uh, he'd say, the mind is like still flowing water. That essentially the mind is still. It never goes anywhere. But yet perceptions, feelings, moods, they flow through it. So the mind is like still flowing water. So you live with this all the time. So it's important that you know it. Um, and then this passage, uh, um, when, when in 1981, it was, uh, I was living in England. It was just the early days of our, our monastery, the first forest monastery that we had there, uh, Chithurst. And one day, uh, a letter arrived from Thailand, and um, the handwriting was one of the American monks who lived there. Uh, but inside, he, uh, it was a letter from him, and he said, uh, Dear Ajahn Sumedho, are you never going to believe this, but uh, Lumpur, Ajahn Chah, asked me to take dictation and to send a, a letter from him to you. Uh, Ajahn Chah could write, but, uh, <laughs> he, uh, uh, but he, he very rarely did. And he certainly never wrote letters to anybody. Um, but yet, uh, so this was a very unusual circumstance, but it was in that, that summer of 1981. And, uh, and so then uh, the letter said, so this is what uh, Lumpur uh, asked me to write. He said, whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aids and partners in building paramita, the spiritual perfections. The Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This Sumato is your place of non-abiding. Chara. (laughs) 
And that was, that was the last message that ever uh, went between Ajahn Chah and Ajahn Sumedho. He had a, a, a stroke and, uh, shortly after that. And then his health degenerated over the next few months and he became paralyzed and, and unable to speak. So it was really like the last, last instructions. Now you think, if you had an, a, 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 a premonition or intimation that your health was going to collapse and you're the head of about, you know, 80 or 100 monasteries and, and you want to send a message to your, your chief disciple running your, your only branch monastery abroad, a devoted friend and, and, uh, and student, you might think, well, please do this and don't do that and, 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 um, and pass on my greetings to so-and-so. And, you know, and uh, if you want to change things in this way, then go ahead. If you want to change them like that, like, uh, like that, then absolutely don't do it. And, you know, list of do's and don'ts and, oh, by the way, you know, this might be my last message. Well, absolutely none of that. It was just, whenever you have feelings of love or hate for anything whatsoever, these will be your aides and partners. And the Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. This Sumato is your place of non-abiding. So that was the, the most comprehensive and kind final instructions. <laughs> because that, that fits every situation that we're ever likely to encounter in our lives. And so, if we look um, in, at, at things in terms of progress or degeneration or even stasis, <laughs> none of that really fits. And so that the mind is always trying to find uh, a sense of, of progress or a fear of degeneration. It's like in that things getting better, things getting worse, hope and fear. And uh, what Ajahn Chah is pointing to is that fundamental quality of us letting go of time, letting go of self, letting go of, of loc- uh, locality. It's only in that radical and complete letting go then you're able to truly be attuned to every situation. So, it's, it might seem extraordinarily abstruse, like non-locality, geez, you know. I'm a realtor. Location, location, location. Everyone knows that. You know. It's like, in the Dharma, it's non-locality, non-locality, non-locality. <laughs> this is the true ethic for the new age. So, um, and so, that, uh, but that is, is it's extraordinarily practical advice because what happens is that as soon as the, the mind is trying to buy into getting somewhere or afraid of things going that way and, and regretting they've gone the other way and, and creating past and future and self and other and here and there as solid realities, the, the more that we do that, the more that we're natu- we're, we're, we are actually and naturally out of whack with everything. And it's when we let those go and that we, that we can tap into this quality of non-abiding, then um, it's in that moment then we, we are able to, to find the right thing to do or to not do, to leave things alone or to act. So this, these passages from the Udana, um, which can seem you know, really far out and abstruse, um, the, um, they're actually... Uh, if you reflect on them, they're very distinct and practical advice that uh, neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, neither a dying nor a reappearance, has no basis, no evolution and no support. Just this, this just this is the end of dukkha. So it can be interesting just to take a, a, a phrase like that, no evolution, no basis, no support. And just ask yourself, well, what is that? How do I feel that? Well, where do I find that in myself? Does where apply? <laughs> What is it? And so there's exploring that and finding that quality. And okay, the Buddha very emphatically said, "This, just this, is the end of dukkha." Now he wasn't making that as an idle statement. 
Now, how and why could and should that be? If this, what, what, this, if this is the end of dukkha, how is that? How do I feel that? How do I experience that? What do I do with that? So that you're actually um, not just taking these words as a remote philosophical statement, but finding that, that place within your, uh, your own being where there is no evolution, no basis, where there's that, that kind of groundless quality of, of non-abiding. Um, but again, as Ajahn Chah said, he'd say, the, the, uh, like in, in, in Thailand, the huts are always up on stilts, and he'd, he'd sit on a little wicker bench under his hut and receive people and say, the ground here, this is, a, this is an abiding, this is a becoming. And the, the floor upstairs, that's an abiding, that's a becoming. But the space in between, you can't stand there, can you? There's nothing to stand on. But this, this space between the, the upstairs and the downstairs, this, this is Nibbana. <laughs> you, there, there isn't a place to stand. Which again would frustrate people to, to hell. But, <laughs> but, but Lumpur, we can't stand there because there isn't anything to stand on. He says, yes. <laughs> okay, so um, if there's a, a question or two on that, then we can have that and then we'll... It's just before th- three now, it's about ten to three or five to three, and then we'll... We'll have a, a little break for a few minutes to stretch legs and use the restroom and such like. Ajahn. Yes. So in this passage on page 156 where um, he goes, where we go through this description of it neither being this nor that, neither perception or non-perception, etc., etc., this being the end of dukkha. Um, so that's a description of Nibbana that um, seems easy to, to relate to in some way. The question this morning about momentary Nibbana mm-hmm. doesn't seem to fit in with this description of Nibbana. So the idea of just non-clinging mm-hmm. being Nibbana I'm not, it doesn't jive somehow. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> so, that's the, what I would do is say, oh, that's interesting. And so, how does this fit with, with that other experience? Mm-hmm. Or, because also, when Ajahn Chah would be describing this, he'd say, <clears throat> because it, that, that same not going, neither coming nor going nor standing still, that would be equally embodied, not just in some deep state of meditation, but in how you walk along the path down to the meditation hall. It's like learning to, to walk without going anywhere. So that it's, it's um, this seems like, uh, uh, I mean, it's referring to these um, subtle qualities of, um, of mind, like the, the sphere of neither perception or non-perception. But also, um, the... Uh, when he says, I call it neither a coming nor a going nor a staying still, that, that is like when, when you feel that you're staying still, then it's like, what, what, what is not moving? What is, what is this stillness here? Why do I call this not moving? When I, when I feel this going or something is arriving, where's it coming from? Is that real? So that even in the midst of, uh, of ordinary activity, so this isn't just referring to some deep state of, of meditation. It's just, in that, um, this is how I, I how I read it. 
that, yeah, when it's taken to its fullest extent, then it's a, an all-encompassing experience like arahantship. But on a moment-to-moment moment basis, it's just like, oh yes, the body's moving, the tongue is moving, but actually nothing, nothing is going anywhere. That the, there's an object moving. You say, my hand is moving. Yes, but that which knows the hand is neither moving nor not moving. Space doesn't apply. Yes, there's movement, but there is a stillness. So that when the mind awakens to that, in the midst of any ordinary activity, then it's like, oh, right, that's just a figure of speech, that's just a, a presumption. Then in that moment, there's a recognition, oh, right, there isn't really any coming or going. Aha! So at that moment, when there's no clinging, there's no dukkha. So then as soon as the mind then grabs that or does something with it or drifts off from that, then there's dukkha again. <laughs> so that this, this language is kind of dramatic. You know, no sun, no moon, no stars. <laughs> you know, but it's, it's it gets your attention. To relate to nibbana with a, this kind of a description. Yeah. This other thing is much more subtle. And yeah. I, I got a flavor of it in your explanation here. Thank you. And on that note, we can have a break for five minutes or ten minutes. <laughs>